On this, the inaugural episode of Forgotten Gems, we discuss 2005's Thumbsucker, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival to much acclaim, yet seems forgotten. Is it good? Is it bad? Are we going to love it? Are we going to tell you to find it right now? Or are we going to say to stay away? Let's jump on in and find out. Hello, everyone. Welcome to uh, Cinema Smorgasbord and the first episode of our Forgotten Gems series. Uh, the the purpose of the series, we're going to take a look at some film festival favorites that initially got a lot of attention. People talked about there was a lot of buzz. But since then, they've fallen into obscurity. Even if the directors or the other people involved have become more well known, we don't really talk about these movies anymore. Uh uh, we're we're going to dig them up, we're going to take a look at some of them from the past, and then we're going to decide, you know, should we still be thinking about this film, or, or, or is it, uh, you know, not important anymore? Uh, joining me, unfortunately, as always, is uh, Doug, Tilly, Doug, hey, Thumbsucker, 2005, are you excited? Oh, yeah, no, I mean, sort of. I mean, this is a difficult, this is a difficult theme for a show, because if I was super excited about it, then I would have come up with another excuse to talk about it on some other different show. So a lot of the movies I feel like sure. we're going to talk about on Forgotten Gems are movies that are difficult to be excited about. And that's kind of the point. I also want to – I don't take issue with it because I actually helped write it. But the part of your intro where we say that it's fallen into obscurity, we have to, we have to kind of preface that by saying – that's according to us. This is a movie, or these are movies that we don't sure. hear about so much. And let's face it, Liam, we are both too online. Like we're online way too much. So if way too online. if people were talking about these movies all the time, we probably would know it. But the other thing is because we're online so much, we're in sort of a bubble. There might be this amazing thumb sucker cult out there that, and they're yelling at their <laughs> their various right. MP3 players right now. Um, because uh, they don't want us to, 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 to suggest that the movie is forgotten. MP3 players. Mm -hmm. Was that a 2005 reference you just made? Okay, cool, cool, cool. Let's be clear. Some of these films have probably, that we're going to choose, probably have fallen into obscurity. Right. Some of them are just films that we don't talk about as much anymore. Some of them are just films where I looked at who, you know, maybe in this one I thought, let's look at Sundance 2005. Oh, here's a movie I remember hearing a lot about that I never saw, whose director we're still talking about. Mike Mills, whether it was Beginners, which I saw opening night in the theater, or 20th Century Women, which a lot of people I know think is one of the best films of the last decade. Uh, we still care about Mike Mills, and yet I don't see a lot of retrospectives discussing Thumbsucker and its importance, uh, though it was at least a, a well-talked-about film in 2005. So, you know, I thought it was something worth returning to. Some of the movies we're going to be talking about, you might literally say, I don't know what that is. Right. That's crazy. Or it might be something that you loved at the time and you still kind of love, but, you know, for whatever reason, me and Doug just haven't heard as much about it. Um, I, I would love for us to occasionally cover things that I – personally think are great and people should be talking about more <laughs> but i thought it would be good to start with something that i was like you know i knew that that came out but uh, i don't know anything about it and i quite literally i don't know about you doug i was very surprised when this movie started because i didn't look into anything ahead of time at the cast of this film <laughs> i mean it's it's star-studded and uh maybe even a little bit more 
respectable of a cast, maybe that's the wrong word, in fact, it almost certainly is, uh, now than it was back back in 2005, which isn't to say that names like Keanu Reeves and Tilda Swinton were not, you know, famous in 2005, but I feel like uh, Keanu was maybe hitting a bit of a lull in his career at that time, and Tilda was on her way up, and since then, you know, they both, I think, they have both attained a level of credibility that maybe they didn't have in 2005. At least to maybe a mainstream audience. Certainly. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it's um, it's in that way interesting also because there are uh, actors in the film, like let's say Vince Vaughn, who at the time were probably a pretty big get, but nowadays don't seem to have the same sort of uh, box office uh, power that maybe they once did. Uh, though 2005, maybe also he was on his way down uh, at that point. I don't know. So Thumbsucker premiered, as we said, at Sundance in 2005, um, and the director, uh, Mike Mills, uh was nominated uh in a few categories for um best first feature at the independent spirit award uh it was nominated for the grand jury prize at sundance in the dramatic category i don't know how your sort of relationship is with this movie but this was a film that i probably watched the trailer for this movie 10 times like I at the time in 2005 was obsessed with trailers. I watched all kinds of trailers coming out of film festivals, even if I never got to see those movies. And when this came out, I was very much like, "Oh, that looks great! I really want to see that." Uh, and it's one of the the stick out films from 2005 of things that I had planned to see and just never got to see mm. it. I, I I don't know. Had you heard about this before watching it for this podcast? Yeah, I mean, I heard about it in the way you know. It's funny that sometimes in my mind I categorize movies like this as things like Sundance movies, you know what I mean? And at the time, in the mid-2000s, there were a lot of movies that I would have categorized that way. Movies, a lot of them are coming-of-age movies, like this one is, uh, but they're also kind of quirky comedies, and this one is not really a comedy, but there are comedic elements to it. Kind of maybe like, like, uh, you know, very much in that midpoint of uh, drama and comedy. Um, And I I think the movie that most defines that period for me is Little Miss Sunshine and while this movie isn't really like that sure it is the movie I think of when I think of that particular kind of tone where there's just that I mean I know that word quirk is a loaded word but I mean if this movie does have these kind of isolated quirky elements particularly with the dream sequences and things like that in it and how some of the characters operate particularly Keanu Reeves character um, and and I really kind of define that era with that sort of thing and the other thing that of course defines this movie in that era is the soundtrack, but we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in just a little bit. But yeah, I had heard of it. I knew of it. I was aware who was in it. And I honestly, I don't think after 2005, I had even the strong, even the smallest inkling to want to actually track it down and watch it. I mean, I know it was in, I, 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 I'm sure this is a phenomenon for a number of you, but the phenomena of the Netflix queue prior to Netflix becoming a streaming service. So I don't know why we would have listeners this young but if we did and you didn't know this netflix previously was just a service that would send you dvds and you could make your queue i think the limit was like a thousand films you could put in your queue uh and so thumbsucker was in my queue i know it was in my queue it was in my queue for a long time dvd never came though because i just kept adding more movies to the queue and then reordering it based upon the things i actually wanted to see um uh even when i saw beginners in the theater I still didn't go back and say, oh, hey, I should 
get that DVD sent to me from Netflix so I could watch Thumbsucker. <laughs> right. Um, it just it just fell through the crack. And then it's at a certain point, Netflix was finally like, look, do you really want this DVD thing or do you want just streaming? And I, I jumped over to just streaming, lost the whole queue. That's how it goes sometimes. Um, so Thumbsucker is uh, a bit of a coming-of-age film. Uh, uh, our main character, Justin Cobb, he, he's uh, dubbed by his uh, hippie orthodontist, played by uh, Keanu Reeves, the King Kong of oral obsessives. Basically, he's a 16, 17-year-old kid who sucks his thumb. Uh, his father is a former football star, uh, played by Vincent D'Onofrio. He's great. His mom is uh, – uh, she's kind of uh, obsessed with a TV uh, star. Um, and he has a weird sort of home life because of their – dynamics of their relationship. Um, uh, uh uh, he his uh, orthodontist suggests hypnosis. He tries that; it seems to work. But then other issues come up, and finally, he's diagnosed with ADHD. He goes on medication, and that starts to change his life. And the movie kind of goes from there. Um, we will be spoiling it, but I'll save you that spoiling in the synopsis. As we said, Lou Taylor Pucci is in this. Tilda Swinton, Vincent Nafrio, Keanu Reeves, Kelly Garner, who. Um, I knew I recognized, but I wasn't sure from what. Uh, but she's been in uh, a number of films, um, and uh, Benjamin Bratt and Vince Vaughn. Mm. Uh, Vince Vaughn playing the jerky teacher, a role he was born to play. <laughs> um, uh, as, as we said, directed by Mike Mills, also co-written by Mike Mills with uh, Walter Kim, who actually wrote the novel Thumbsucker as well as the novel Up in Apparently, the by the way, a, a semi-autobiographical novel, uh, which I think is kind of an important thing to note because right. one of the things I had difficulty with when watching this is it didn't feel some of the things that happened in this didn't feel legitimate to me. In fact, a lot of the things didn't, but I had to, you know, kind of put my brakes on some of those criticisms, knowing that at least partially these are things that the writer actually experienced. It just maybe didn't echo my own high school experience, which is fair enough. It's not like I, I wasn't exactly the most popular or outgoing person in high school. Sure. Uh, so when I see a movie that doesn't match those experiences, um, it doesn't necessarily bother me, but it, it 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 meant that it took me a while to to think of a universe where the worst thing kids could do is maybe smoke a little pot and maybe have some beer in a hotel room, and that's supposed to be seen as this kind of going off the rails scenario. When you know this was a few years after the movie Kids, and you know, the, yeah. which and like that wasn't my experience either. But at least I could see that experience in my reality, while this one seems, in some ways, a little tamer. So let's talk about that. I, I, let's talk about the the you know just the basic response of the film. I, I I completely hear what you're saying, and um, a question I wanted to pose to you is, you know, this is 2005. I think the the soundtrack painfully reminds us of that over and over again. <laughs> um, and you know, in 2005 we're talking about the beginning of the second bush regime uh mm. we're talking about john Kerry's just failed not just america but the world and sure. um and because of the swift boat veterans yeah <laughs> <Sorry>. exactly exactly <laughs> suddenly suddenly the term flip-flop meant more than an embarrassing piece of footwear um and i, I gotta say as as excited as i was legitimately in 2005 to try to find and watch this film there's some part of me watching it now that thinks is this the definition of white people problems doug as a white man <laughs> i look to you to answer that question uh i will say that uh before i get into that by the way i want to bring up one thing which i didn't mention before which is that a lot of people 
and I, I've already discovered this from just talking about this movie over the last couple of days, but also including sure. myself, confused this movie with the movie The Chum Scrubber, which came out the exact same year and also has Lou Taylor Bucci in it, which is a very confusing thing. Look, I know that those words, Thumbsucker and Chum Scrubber, are not that similar, but both movies are about disaffected youths. I, I haven't seen The Chum Scrubber, so I don't know how how closely there's a, there are elements that, that are similar. But But, you know, a... Similarly sounding title in 2005, both with the same actor in it. I can see how people might get a little confused. And also, that's another movie, by the way, that I put in that exact same Sundance category I was talking about before. So, whether this reflects the reality... Can you Mm -hmm. talk... Do you know anything about that movie? Because here's the thing. I don't understand anything you just said. What is that? I've never heard of that. I don't know anything about it. I didn't even know Lou Taylor Pucci was in other movies. I'm kidding. I knew he was in other movies. But <laughs> I don't know what that remake. I know. I know. I to- I'm totally joking around. But uh, I've never heard of Chum Scrubber. I don't even know what that is. Uh, it's uh, Jamie Bell stars in it. Uh, and it's about a teenager, I think, who... Uh, it says, I'm just looking at the the plot summary here. He supplies feel-good pills to everyone in his high school. Uh, it sounds like it's a little a lot darker than this movie. I, I guess... Uh, it, sure. It, like there's there's suicide and and kidnappings and things like that, but the cast also has a lot of very recognizable actors. Glenn Close is in it. Ray Fiennes is in it. Uh, John, Hur- I mean, it's it, it's got some recognizable names just like this, but it kind of has that, uh, you know, that Igby goes down and uh, bully and movies of that time period that I all kind of connect into one sort of of um, uh, collection of disaffected youth movies. But I mean, that's. I think that goes back sure. to what you were saying. There was a lot of disaffection in in two thousand five, and I was feeling it. Right. But at that point, I was already in my mid twenties. You know, I didn't have that same sort of angst that I could still relate to in movies like this. I had my period of that in the late nineties. I had movies like Rushmore, which really, you know, those were my high school movies. Movies. I and in that case, I could even go back. Right. I was still watching things like Say Anything or maybe Harold and Maude, and those are things that I could, that still spoke to me, even though they were. Very much detached from my own experience. But the thing all of those three movies I just named have in common, Liam, is you're right. They're very much kind of white people movies. And I, I don't I don't want to paint with too broad a brush once again, but they do kind of feel like a very specific sort of middle upper class experience that uh, is is not universal. And it wasn't universal for me. I mean, I come from a very uh, lower-tier economic background. I come from Newfoundland, which is <laughs> notorious in my own country for being a place where a lot of um, not very smart people come from. There's a lot of... of <laughs> there's a lot of negative um, energy when it comes to Newfoundland in, in the sure, country of yeah. Canada. Um, but I don't want to... I'm not comparing it in any way to, uh, to, to the minorities and how they're treated within this country and outside of this country. But what I should say is that The high school experience that's on here, it's funny because what's on display in this movie is a lot closer to my experience than, say, what was in Kids, which I know was an experience that other people were having, just they weren't happening to me. Um, But I do feel like that, that experiences for a lot of people are a lot more benign even than what our experience in this movie. Um, The the idea in particular, uh, yes, please. I was saying, I I think the thing we have to get at though here, Doug, is that you referenced you referenced Rushmore, right? Mm. And I think the question I have that I want us to hone in on is: is Thumbsucker like Rushmore in that it's well aware 
that the problems as well as the context is presenting are not normative that in fact i would suggest that rushmore is a film made by someone who is familiar with this certain world and is mocking it uh, and so is Thumbsucker meant to be like, yeah, it's silly that his, his like his big rebellion moment is he gets drunk with four nerd girls at a hotel room. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> is the film now, by the way, I'll, I'll immediately start start getting, you know, getting undressed in the context. of right. that. Again, right. Which, again, I, I understand right. there's, there's a heightened reality on display here. But I think that's a really good point that you're bringing up, Liam. I do think that Rushmore more ears on the side of. Both um, mocking and celebrating at the same time, uh, because it is about an outsider. Sure. But it is ex- about an outsider that you could totally see Wes Anderson being that kind of outsider, and has continued to be to some extent. But I think it appeals to people who feel a- outside of whether it be their high school community, whatever, whether it be society as a whole. And I do think that this movie is trying to appeal to a similar idea. Justin in this movie does feel disaffected, but it's a very kind of light kind of disaffection, right? He feels uncomfortable in his own skin. He feels, because of his thumb-sucking habit, he feels, I guess, somewhat infantile. And this is about him trying to come out of it. But I thought while watching it that the point of this movie was um, this guy, he, you know, he feels like he doesn't know what's going on, but really, he, you know, he does know it or he's going to figure it out or that sort of thing. But um, I'm kind of glad that they vocalized the kind of larger message of what you're we're watching, which is that nobody knows what the fuck is going on. That everyone is just trying. You know, they're just doing their best, and they're they're coming up with their philosophies, and they're coming up, you know, with, with where it comes with Keanu Reeves, and it's like he's got this really specific kind of recognizable philosophy as this dentist character that he then abandons. But it whether one was better than the other, he's just trying to figure it out, and that's you know Justin is sort of flailing. I think is kind of one of the defining aspects of his character, and he's looking for easy answers. But the, the fact is that it's all just a lot of hard work that takes a lifetime to try to figure out. Well, and I think you're touching on my other big question. So my first sort of question watching this was, uh, is this self-aware that Justin doesn't have any real problems? I mean, it it, it Mm. bumps up against a real issue that was particularly poignant in 2005, which is that, you know, maybe we're over-medicating kids for ADHD. And and I don't think that means that ADHD isn't real. And and I do want to warn folks who haven't seen this movie Mm -hmm. that if you are someone for whom – you are concerned that our skepticism around medication is hurtful. This is a medication skeptic movie. It, it is, is. absolutely. It is a film that uh, a central plot point is that Justin doesn't really need the ADHD meds, that what he needs is something else entirely. Uh, and, you know, I think that's true of some people, but the idea that that is a universal truth doesn't work for me. No. But that's a distraction even from the point I was trying to make, which is that is the movie aware that his – both his problems and his successes are all very specific to a certain kind of person in a certain kind of economic class and that he never is in any real danger of anything like that. There's no drama. Sure. In, in other words, I think I think that um, Rushmore and other Wes Anderson movies are fully aware. People always attack them as like, well, they're just like privileged white people movies. And I'm like, yeah. I know that's the point. Like that's that's intentional. That's a choice he's making to tell a certain kind of story with a certain sure. kind of affect. No, yeah, I was just going to say no, you're 100% right. I think that in and I don't think this is a criticism, but it's also one of the reasons that the movie probably does connect with some people because I know there are people out there who really like this right. movie. 
is that Justin's problems in this movie are not that serious. He's not doing that great in school, but he's not flunking out. He's not maybe going to get into a New York university, but you know he's getting enough good enough grades to go to like a post secondary uh, place of learning, right? I mean, his parents they're not they don't give him the amount of attention that he deserves, but they don't beat the shit out of him. They're not terrible to him. They don't get along like this loving perfect couple. But you know, it's not like they hate each other or are screaming at each other all the time. So it's just like it's a lot of recognizably shitty things going on in Justin's life, but they're not. They are very reflective of a worldview that uh, I think a lot of people would feel very distanced from. And I don't, and I, but I think that the people who made this think that they're very serious issues. While other people, I think, outside of the context of this, it's possible watching this to be like, what's wrong with this guy? He's got, he's got it made. He's got a, got a beautiful house. He's got, you know, friends. He's actually, we never see him with friends, but, you know, he, he doesn't seem to have really any social problems. He's able to make connections with, uh, with, uh, the, uh, Kelly Garner's character, Rebecca. And, uh, you know, but so, so I think what you're saying is absolutely right. I think this movie treats Justin's issues as if they're maybe more serious than someone like me, who's, you know, almost 40 years old sees, but, that they're also, I remember as a high school student, these smaller things seemed like the entire world. So I think that's also a very relatable thing. The other question I have, Doug, and I wanted to put to you, is that um, there's a sense for me in which the movie is as much about the adults who don't get as much time at, sure. but are still important, uh, especially his parents, especially Keanu Reeves. Uh, and in that sense, is the film... I guess what I'm trying to say is, do I feel like it's more about the adults because they're better actors than Lou Taylor Pucci? <laughs> or is it the film really doing a misdirect where we're all involved in right. uh, Justin's life, but Justin's life isn't the point because he's just getting started. It's really about the ways that the adults around him are trying to find themselves, and he is not really important to the narrative or the most essential part of the narrative. I mean, he's he is super important to the narrative. Exactly. Yeah, but I see what you're saying. That he's kind of a Trojan horse in this case, right? And it's something that I struggled with, and it's why I was able to eventually connect to this movie when I realized that the parents are such a huge part of it. They don't get as much screen time as Justin, and I think actually Lou Taylor Pucci is very good in this. I think he he because he doesn't have as recognizable a face. You know, he's not. Uh, I mean, he's a, he's a handsome young man, but he's not this unbelievably attractive modelish person. I do think that there's an a, a easier ability to connect to a character, and I think his acting is fine too. But I mean, you know, he is leaning up against some pretty heavy hitters there. If your parents are Tilda Swinton and Vincent D'Onofrio, that's pretty intense. And I like that both of those characters are underplayed in a lot of ways. That they're right, not, right. you know, that again, there isn't those those scenes of them screaming at each other. There's a menace in Vincent D'Onofrio's character, but he never comes off as being like this total piece of shit guy. He just seems to be someone who's very distant from his son because his own experience is so different. And the fact that they're able to connect at one time, they seem to connect on a very light, but a very realistic way, you know, in a way that two people who are very emotionally distant and maybe aren't used to being emotionally vulnerable, that might be the only way that they can connect. But I mean, they're they're fucked up characters, right? Tilda Swinton's character is fucked up because of her own inability to kind of confront the realities of her situation. But I also, uh, it's funny that the most kind of emotionally aware character ends up being the little brother simply because he sees things as they are. And uh, yeah. even even if he also has to kind of 
put on a kind of a pretend persona to get through life because that's just what everyone has to do. I think I'm just also thinking about the the scene, you know, so what happens, y'all, eventually Justin gets into college. The movie never really deals with the fact that Justin gets into college by lying about his parents. That doesn't seem to be important. But uh but Justin gets into college uh in NYC and he's gonna move away. And the scene where he tells his dad is some next level subtle performance from our man yeah. Vincent D'Onofrio. Mm-hmm. When he just looks at him and says, I was just getting used to you. Yeah, it's a pretty sweet. Oh, yeah, it crushes it. It crushed me a little bit. That that is some great. And again, I I do think that the mark of a great actor is the knowledge of of when to underplay. And you know, Tilda Swinton's a a producer on this. She could have easily have you know just let loose in her performance. And I think both of them really are restrained in a really positive way. But I I should say by the way that I don't think that he was totally lying on his entrance thing i mean when you say that your parents have mental illness it does bring to mind certain things that are more intense than what he's experiencing but i do think that they that they are both dealing with hidden maybe not as uh um life affecting mental illnesses that come out in a variety of ways throughout the movie but to suggest he's overcome great obstacles, I yeah, think it's absolutely, it's a total exaggeration, right? But I mean, I think of it also. Yeah, it's just like yeah. it, it's it's like he's the important thing is, and I hate maybe I don't hate to say this. This is just a reality of the year twenty twenty. The way that you get in is the way that you get in. You know, whatever you got to do to get no, in that's there, true. That's yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, so we haven't we've sort of talked around it in in a good way because we've really now analyzed the film, but we haven't just said just straight up what we think and and I'll start and I want to know a little bit from Mm -hmm. you like if you have to just sum it up what you think Uh, but my feeling on the film is that I actually think the core of the movie is good even if the whole time I'm thinking yo it's 2005 we've been in Iraq too long already at this point we're gonna be (laughs) in it for almost another you know two decades or or whatever like you know what I mean like it's such an intense time and uh, to give you guys an idea, you know, 2005, I was I was 26 years old. I was actually similarly melancholy in 2005 the way that Justin is. And so I, that's probably part of my attraction to wanting to see this movie. But my melancholy was that it was 2005, we were still in Iraq, and no one cared anymore. Like, it didn't seem like... there weren't really as many protests like people weren't as riled up like I was kind of thinking like maybe politics were over in 2005 and you know it took a few years for me to feel like there was energy again Um, so it's kind of funny watching this film that has a similar sense of melancholy but it's like for reasons I don't really identify with to a certain extent Um, Hmm. all that to say I still think the movie is pretty good there's just a few things about it that are so 2005 that they are <laughs> distracting to me. I think part of that is the affect of how it's filmed and the and the melancholy of Justin's character. I also think it's the soundtrack, which I want to get into. So I think, for me, this is a very mixed bag. Uh, Doug, was this a mixed bag for you? Was there things that you really love or the things that you hated? And are we finally going to talk about this <laughs> outstanding, in whatever way you want to take that word, soundtrack? <laughs> Uh, it, I wouldn't call it a mixed bag because a mixed bag to me suggests that the, that I'm watching it and I like some things and I don't like other things and it's kind of bouncing back and forth. That's not my experience with this movie. With my experience, it was at the beginning I really wasn't liking it. And when I say I wasn't liking it, it's not that I didn't think that 
there was value in it. it. It was the fact that I couldn't connect to it at all. I felt too old to be watching it is really the problem I was running into. I felt really distant yeah, yeah. from the problems that were on display. And that continued for a lot of the movie because that's what I thought it was about. I didn't I didn't catch on to the fact that these secondary characters, and that extends to people like Vince Vaughn's character, and this extends to some extent to Benjamin Bratt's character, um, that this that it was about Justin's relationship with these characters, but also what that revealed about them that made this movie interesting. And when I when I kind of grabbed onto that in the final half hour, 20 minutes or so, I, I was able to kind of relax. I knew what I was, um, what I could appreciate about the movie, and I started liking it a lot more. So I will say that I was very skeptical going in, and I remained skeptical for at least the first half of this movie, but by the end of it, I would give it a, a kind of... A mild recommendation. I liked it. I wouldn't say I loved it. It doesn't fit into those coming-of-age kind of classics in my mind that are these movies that I return to again and again. But I could see someone else watching this and seeing their own experience in some way reflected and getting something really kind of significant out of it. So one of the details about this movie that's important for us to discuss is the soundtrack, which was either composed or curated by the Polyphonic Spree. I'm assuming all 90 of them got in a room, uh, including various <laughs> naked people, and uh, dropped whatever passed for Molly at the time, and then uh, picked some songs to uh, put on the soundtrack. Uh, Doug, how did the, the soundtrack for this film uh, improve or detract your uh, watching experience? So this is a difficult thing to talk about to some extent. Um, so in 2005, I was absolutely listening to the Polyphonic Spree. Do not get me wrong. That was the same, kind of music. Same. I was list- And I was listening to a lot of bands that had like 15 people on stage. Uh, that's just the kind of music I was into. You know, I was into a lot of... Uh, I was going to say like strange indie as if Polyphonic Spree wasn't at least somewhat mainstream indie at that time period. But like I really enjoyed their music and I'm not saying that it's bad or anything like that now, but I moved away from that a long time ago. Uh, So it really does, listening to this soundtrack, bring me back very specifically to that mid-2000s time. Now, yeah, it's the Polyphonic Spree and the other voice that you hear in the soundtrack a lot in this movie is Elliot Smith. And Elliot Smith is sort of, when you listen to him, and I still love listening to Elliot Smith. I really think he's incredible. And uh, that cover of Big Stars 13, by the way, is one of my favorite songs in any context, and I love it in this movie. But it's... If you wanted to create some artificial melancholy, putting Elliot Smith on your soundtrack is a good way of doing it, simply because of everything he as a performer brought with him and what we know about him. So that that, that I think that adds another kind of layer to the soundtrack. But I think I think that the soundtrack actually works really well. In the same way that the Sufjan Stevens songs in um uh Little Miss Sunshine work really well. It, but part of that working well is that it does immediately kind of date it. And I don't think that's necessarily a criticism. It just means, you know, I, mean, I guess you could say the same thing about the Cat Stevens songs in, in Harold and Maude, right? I mean, they're they're very much of the time period uh, uh, that, that the movie came out in, and it does place it in that time. But this is a movie about a kind of a specific experience. Again, based on a uh, semi-autobiographical novel and, and is supposed to be reflective of the time that it came out. So um, maybe in some ways I was thinking that it was, it was a negative because of how dated I felt watching it. But um, in some ways 
it's probably the most appropriate kind of soundtrack because it is very much of the time that this movie was made and this movie is very much of the time that it was taking place in. <laughs> I found it so twee and cloying I wanted to jump out a window. <laughs> I, um, I mean, don't be wrong. Like, I, I love Elliot Smith still, but I think uh, post, post-Royal Tenenbaums, in which Needle in the Hay is employed probably in its most effective way ever. Absolutely, 100%. Um, uh, after that, just stop with Elliot. Just leave him alone. Like, it just seems like whatever it you is do a is going to seem... What'd you say? It is a shortcut. When you put him on the soundtrack, it is. it feels like it's a replacement for Yeah, well, something. and so that's what I was feeling. This is actually... The Elliot Smith songs are actually part of my motivation for thinking, well, maybe nothing in this film is sincere. In which case, mm. this is a much better movie than I'm giving it credit for. I actually think as a metaphor of criticism of a certain kind of self-involved, narcissistic melancholy, this movie could possibly be brilliant, actually. Um, or at least almost getting there. And that's how I felt about the deployment of these Elliot Smith songs, which I just feel like are too much for this movie. Um, and then... To then go from that to the Polyphonics free songs, or some of them, I don't even know if you call them songs, just soundscapes. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. it, you know, the Polyphonics free stuff is so just. Uh, da, 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 da. It's just like. Uh, uh, it, it feels like we're being served a, a meal of steak and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And. It uh, is interesting, yeah, because I mean, if you wanted to, it's hard to think about two artists that took a more different approach to the style of music they made than the polyphonic spree and Elliot Smith. And it is an interesting and not always comfortable mixture on this soundtrack. It, I just feel like it doesn't work and it does date it, but it doesn't just date it for me. There's also just my personal response to it, which is like, Oh, this was a time where I was so immersed in what I would call like effective, uh, false, depressed you know it's really funny because with uh in our mm-hmm. current sort of young people environment with the advent of like you know uh, uh zanny soundcloud rap there is a lot of like mm-hmm. fake sort of depression going on like a lot of like That's true i'm so i'm so depressed and i just want to like do you know sit in bed and watch inuyasha all day and it's <laughs> performative on social media but but what I find frustrating about fellow Gen Xers or old millennials is that we act like that's new as if an entire music industry wasn't based off of affective emotion that just ignored the bombs falling from the sky from our taxes. Like that's the thing about this time is I, I really wanted to involve myself in all of this music and some of it was super sincere. Like Elliot Smith, I believe that's an interesting thing wrote. Yeah, that's a really interesting point that you bring up because the polyphonic the polyphonic spree was an act that b- built on affectation, right? They were wearing like uh, right. they, they were wearing costumes and they were doing a style of music based around the idea of like this this giant cult thing. And and even if some of their music had sincere themes, the 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 presentation that they had was completely separated from that and very insincere. While you have Elliot Smith who w- who took that sincerity to a really unfortunate extreme, but was like you said, you believed every word he said. So again, another weird mixture when it comes to the artists on this soundtrack. 
No, and th- again, this is why, and I don't think it's true. Like, I don't want people to think I'm actually bringing some meta analysis to Thumbsucker of all movies. But there's a small <laughs> part of me that thinks maybe there is a sense of irony here. If there is, I think the movie's smarter than I was willing to give it credit for. If there isn't, then just into at least watching it now in 2020, I think, oh, man, this is just not. This is like the demo. This is like your emo band demo that now you, like, won't play the songs live anymore because they're just so fucking embarrassing. You know, that that's how I fe- felt about this movie. Oh, that's more negative than I want, though, because parts of it still are very good, though. Like, I actually mm-hmm. think, like, I think the pacing is very good. I think the performances from Tilda Swinton and from all, almost all the adults is very good. I think Keanu Reeves is being asked here to play a bit of a caricature of himself. But Absolutely. it still works. It still works. It's not a bad caricature. I just think... Mm-hmm. We now know he's capable of a little bit more than that, you know, than I don't think he was given a chance to in this film. But still, that's a minor criticism. I think most of it works. It's just hard because it ends on a note of, like, everything's going to be okay. And my feeling at that sort of ending is, like, "Eh, nothing was that bad to begin with, though, man. Like, I just feel like this isn't (laughs) quite the note of hope because there was nothing at risk in the first place. I also – I have always – uh, since I was a kid watching movies like this, that idea of like getting into a great college in New York or California and getting away, I understand the motivation for movies to end like that. But it has created this culture which makes people think like you can only live in places like that. You know, I I feel like the, you know the idea in this movie is that it would be tragic if he went to a school that was close to his parents because that might. You know, that might doom him to a life like his parents' life. And the only way to escape from that is to maybe go to a place like New York. Um, and I actually, one of the most affecting parts of this movie is that little conversation he has with his mother where she was like, you know, being unable to picture him in places, but that she can picture him in New York and, and the way that that's going to create a separation between the two of them. And just like that moment with Vincent D'Onofrio where, he, you know, just where he was getting kind of comfortable with his own son, that he felt like he had just created this connection and then it was going to be taken away from him but i do think that 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 is the kind of mindset of the sort of people who get to make movies like this you know the kind of run away to new york and find a success but it's also the thing that fuels all these people to completely destroy their lives by going to these places and flaming out entirely i mean uh, let, let me say i will say straight up um, as long as the city you're fleeing to isn't New York and it's a more reasonable city, I encourage you, abandon the suburbs and then burn them down. They're all bad. <laughs> Every single one is bad. There is no suburb that is good. The only places that are good are small towns and they don't have the economy to stay alive anyway, so just move to a city. I 100% support that. There should only be cities and farms. Everything else is a sin. That being said... Um, I actually think you're being too generous to the movie because the movie doesn't actually give us enough of he applies to NYU out of spite and curiosity and he does it on something that is not completely true and then when he gets in he's like I guess I'm going then but like the film doesn't give us enough context to actually be emotionally invested in him going to New York and that's partly the ending of him running a la uh, a la uh, uh, bad blood but in French, uh, it doesn't work. It doesn't work because I don't feel the catharsis he's feeling. I'm thinking, oh, things worked out for the little jerk. Cool. That's it. That's it. That's my emotional investment in that moment. All of my emotions are with his pa- parents and his teachers. Like all of my emotional investment was in his in that world. And him going to New York 
meant nothing to me. And I don't know that I'm just a crazy person. I think the film doesn't earn it having a weight to it. It's funny because it seems like he's on the precipice of making an, the kind of emotional breakthrough with his parents that would allow him to create yep. a strong emotional connection with them. So when Vincent D'Onofrio says that, I think you're supposed to think, well, that's you know that's a failing of his character to some extent, and maybe a failing that's very deep rooted, not necessarily his fault, but a failing. But really, the failing is: look, he should have you know take a year off and become friends with your parents. And again, I I know that's another issue in this movie: the idea that his parents um, have been very resistant to the idea of maturing and becoming adults. They won't even let him use call them mom and dad because of that idea, because it makes them feel old, and they have all these kind of unresolved issues. But when you're on the precipice of creating this kind of deep-seated relationship with your parents, and then you, I mean, in some ways, abandon that to start your new life, I can see, like, that to me feels a little hollow. And and I, it feels a little more melancholy. It makes that decision at the end make it feel a little more kind of uh, distressing. But the movie presents it as, this is his right thing to do. And, and the very fact that it ends on that image, of, again, of him running happily through the streets of New York, we're not supposed to question that, I don't think. I think that very sincerely means, oh, he's done it, he has succeeded. But like you said, I don't think he's earned that success, and I don't think that the, I don't think real life earns that success. Right, I agree. I agree. It's funny. This is sounding like a very heavy criticism. I mostly enjoyed this movie. Let me just be really clear about that. I just think that the parts of it that don't work for me are the very 2005-ish elements of it. Yes. Um, and, and that bums me out because I think that um, if the film – I think films from 2005, just like films from any time period, don't have to feel so mired in their time period that they're difficult to connect to. I love older films from – uh, eras that I don't know anything about uh, and and I find a way to emotionally connect to them. There are elements of this movie I really do connect to. I, I feel bad for his parents that they are where they're at and I feel for them as they're trying to grow and become actual real adults. But uh, you know, that's not what the movie only is about. It's also about him and again, maybe it's not his performance because I don't want to say he's bad but the, the movie just really doesn't get me to a place where I connect with him and it highlights for me all the stylistic choices of the film as well as the soundtrack that kind of like, you know, they don't ruin the movie, but they aren't great for me. Yeah. It's, I mean, I find it, I don't revisit movies like this very much. And I have obviously, this wasn't a revision for me, but what I mean is that the movies from this time period that are about these kind of people are not the kind of movies that I would necessarily watch more than once. And this is a very, you know, with this movie, I I'm unlikely to revisit it anytime soon, which isn't to say I didn't enjoy it. And, but I think part of what I liked about it is the idea. And I think I've already said this a couple of times that other people might be able to get more out of it than I do. So it's the kind of movie that I respect because it is presenting a reality that's not my reality uh, and while not being able to love it because I'm so distanced from that reality. Um, and and I, I know that, that what, I think if I was to write out a review of this, it would be very negative. But while talking about it, I think I can come off as speaking about it kind of positively because there is a lot to respect here. But you were saying a little while ago, Liam, about whether this movie is meant to be sincere at least when it gets down to the failings of his parents, his conversation with Benjamin Bratt outside of the uh, clinic, and then those last few moments, I think it, it means to be very sincere. And I have to say, that sincerity worked for me. But 
the fact that it it that then reflected the idea that the rest of the movie was was supposed to be sincere that made me like the beginning parts less and i already did not like them yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i agree with you um i i'll just go ahead and say you know i don't always return to movies like this but there's a few that have stood out to me and i'll actually say you know the year that this was up for the dramatic uh main dramatic prize or the for uh, uh at sundance um the directing award went to noah bomback for the squid and the whale and that's a perfect example of a quirky film that i've revisited uh unfortunately i didn't sure. pick it for this episode because a number of people revisit it because it's a great fucking movie you know it, it, it's a movie that works really well and uh uh i just couldn't say that about this this movie i love the idea that we're gonna pick a a, a random year go to a film fest see a movie that won an award that we think, well, I don't hear people talking about this. Watch it and go, hey, everybody, you should rewatch this movie. It's really great. That is my dream. That's mud I want for this podcast so bad. Uh, and we're gonna get weirder than Thumbsucker. I started in a place that was very approachable, and we're gonna we're gonna go to some other strange places, and I'm excited <laughs> about that. But but I will say, I was really ready for this to be the first one that we're like, hey yo, everyone, this is it. This is the forgotten gem. Get on board. You're missing out. You already like uh, the director uh, here, so. You know, let, let's 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 start the Thumbsucker revival. And uh, I got to say, Doug, I don't think some Thumbsucker needs a revival. If you are a completist, you know, you're someone who really loves beginners, really loves 20th century women. Why not start off with uh, Mike Mills first? I think that's not a bad plan. I, but I mean, uh, it's a good time now to I, do it. Right. Because he has a movie coming yeah. out soon. Yeah. Uh, come, on, come on with Joaquin Phoenix in it. And I imagine that movie's going to be huge. Yeah, agreed. But do but 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 could I say this is legitimately a forgotten gem that we should reclaim? No. No, I I can't say that. This feels very much like what it is, which is it is a director who is very has built up a lot of confidence because he'd been directing music videos, very well liked music videos for years and years and then had gotten a chance to make a feature and, you know, had brought some visual style to it, but didn't want to get that reputation of like a Michael Bay ish person who goes overboard with the kind of, of uh, quirkiness that could go into a movie like this. So tried to, you know, bring it down to reality with a little surrealistic touch to it, tried to make it kind of uh, reflective of what young people feel and be very kind of uh, real, <laughs> quote unquote real, about what those things were. Obviously found some source material that spoke to him and tried to, I don't know how um, much of a close translation it was to that source material, but I don't think that we should be critical of this movie for its attempt to be sincere because I think in 2020, sincerity is in short supply. That said, it yeah. is the sincerity in this movie is both its greatest strength and its greatest weakness, I think. I think that's very fair, Doug, and I think that's very true. Um, I, and and you know, let, there's there is stuff to appreciate here. It just you know it going back to it, it just doesn't it doesn't all work, and and and, it, and it's a shame. But that being said, uh, if you're if you are a completist, or even if you just want to see some strong side performances from Tilda Swinton and Vincent D'Onofrio, and uh, even uh, even Vince Vaughn, may his name be cursed. Uh, I still think it's worth it, it might be worth checking it out because uh turns out Vince Vaughn is a perfect jerky teacher. Can you believe it? That's so crazy. Yeah, I know. I mean, it, it, admittedly that, you know, he 
all of his characters, even the ones that people love, had that jerky edge. We just didn't necessarily realize that it was representative of who he was as a person. But, um, I mean, you know, he can find his way back. We can always find our ways, our way back, I think. Maybe. We'll see. All right. Thanks for joining us for the first installment of uh, Forgotten Gems. Join us next time as we delve into uh, 1998's film August 32nd on Earth by Denis Villeneuve, uh, which was the winner of uh, a number of awards at the Cannes Film Festival, uh, at Prejutra, uh, and was the Canadian entry for Best Foreign Language Film at the 71st Academy Awards. Uh, yeah. Was it nominated, though? Oh, no. All right. Uh, we're so glad you joined us. Uh, if Doug, if they want to know more about Cinema Smorgasbord, where should they go? You can go over to cinemasmorgasbord.com, which has our links to where you can subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you would like. You can also contact us through that page. If you want to find the latest episodes, go over to cinepunks.com, which also has a huge array of other podcasts and content for you to check out. You can also follow us on Twitter. It's at cinemasmorg. That's S-M-O-R-G. Or you can also search for us on Facebook. We have a nice Facebook group where we do a lot of updates. If you want to make recommendations to us, you can either do that through the website or we're on our Facebook group or via Twitter. And you can also find of course liam on twitter where are you there liam i'm at liam rules l-i-a-m-r-u-l-z you can also follow cinepunks on twitter uh which is c-i-n-e-p-u-n-x and i think doug they can follow you though i recommend they avoid it at all costs well you can avoid it if you want but i'm hard to ignore it's at doug underscore tilly that's t-i-l-l-e-y all right well thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next time here at cinema smorgasbord the smorgasbord of cinema. That's not a catchphrase, but we're saying it oh this time. Oh my God. See you we're later. We're never saying that again. Not ever. <laughs> <laughs>